Since 1971, Beautio Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for, and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick. We have big news. Last week at the biggest week in American Birding, we announced our new executive director, Nikki Belmonte. Uh, welcome, Nikki. We are all very excited to have you charting a course for the ABA into the future. Uh, she lives in Georgia, so shout out to all those Georgia birders who feel newly seen by the ABA. I'm, I'm just happy to have another colleague here in the Southeast, someone I can commiserate with when the you know, trees are fully leafed out by late May. She comes to us directly from a stint as Environmental Education Coordinator for the city of Roswell, Georgia, and Executive Director of Keep Roswell Beautiful, but birders in the region probably remember her best from her nine-year stay leading Atlanta Audubon Society, which became Georgia Audubon under her watch. We're, we're excited to have her. She came up to the biggest week for a couple days, and, and those of us who were there got to meet her. Uh, she's got big plans for the ABA, expanding what we do, making sure we're we're meeting our goals and, and bringing the ABA into a, a bigger and better and more inclusive future. I, I, for one, am excited to have her here. And not for nothing, you know, she is the first woman to be the full-time leader of the ABA. We did have board chair Julie Davis acting as interim director during the search as well. I It may seem gauche to mention that. I, I don't know. It seems worth it to me. It It's nice. If nothing else... Certainly overdue. Uh, we'll have a conversation with Nikki here in a few weeks. I'll give her some time to find her footing before throwing her under the fire. I, it's not really going to be a fire. I'm not not interested in grilling her on anything. Um, but I hope you'll join me in welcoming Nikki, hoping for a and hoping for a productive future for the ABA. On the show today, I've got some brief thoughts about the biggest week in American birding in three years. But first, Julie Zikafus is a writer, an artist, and Boy, it, she's, a, she's a big name in the birding world. Her work has been featured on the covers of many magazines. She's the author, most recently, of Baby Birds. An artist looks into the nest and saving Jemima. Life and love with a hard luck, Jay. She wrote an essay about nature gardening for the most recent special issue of Birding Magazine. She joins me to talk about that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of May 2022. This week saw an extraordinary bird story emerge in southeast Arizona, which is worth mentioning here despite not featuring a first record, though it is the ABA's second record of Pine Flycatcher, a West Mexican impidinax, and a tricky ID which plays into that, that story. A mysterious impid in Pima County, Arizona in mid-April was entered into eBird at the genus level, later changed to the expected Cordilleran flycatcher, but it featured a small snippet of song added as media to the checklist, which was then happened upon by Arizona birder Chris Benish, who heard it and thought something was up. So he headed to the spot where the bird was seen. This is a month after the initial sighting, mind you, and found it and was able to confirm his suspicions that it was in fact a pine flycatcher, at which point many birders followed suit and recordings and photographs of the bird poured in. A very neat story with about as happy an ending as these things have. 
On to the firsts. It looks like we are heading for another Limpkin summer as Missouri hosted its first record of the Weird Waiter in St. Clair County in the west of the state this week, followed almost immediately by his second record at Mingo National Wildlife Refuge in the southeast part of the state. In Alberta, a bar-tailed godwit in Warner County was a provincial first and an exceptional one at that. This famously long-distance migrating shorebird, it of the 18,000-mile nonstop migration from New Zealand to Alaska, is occasionally blown to shore shy of Alaska uh, when, if it encounters westerly winds, uh, turning up on the immediate coast of California and Oregon, and indeed there were some there this week as well. But to be blown as far inland as Alberta is pretty amazing. Staying in Canada, this time to Ontario, where a female hepatic tanager was seen in Oakville, a provincial first and a third for Canada. This southwestern species has a fair pattern of vagrancy, almost certainly overlooked, with a couple records for northern Michigan and two previous Canadian records in Quebec and Alberta. And to New Mexico, which gets two first records this week, making it the first state or province to reach three potential firsts in 2022. Those two new birds include a very sneaky black-vented oriole in Eddy County, a West Mexican species previously only recorded in the ABA area in Texas. Notably, this bird was near the spot where the blue mockingbird spent time last year. And an alder flycatcher in DeBaca County, probably not the first occurrence, but the first occurrence that is well photographed and notably well recorded enough to make the state list. That is a heaping portion of rarities for the week, but for the full accounting, including a few more limpkins, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org RBA. You can also follow along with all the rare bird news in the ABA Rare Bird Alert group that we manage on Facebook. Julie Zikafus scarcely needs an introduction. She is a prolific artist and award-winning writer of too many books to mention here and something of a social media rock star. Is that is that fair to say? <laughs> much, of, much of her work is inspired by her home in Southeast Ohio called Indigo Hill. And that is the topic of a piece she has written for the May special issue of Birding Magazine, Wildlife Gardening in Appalachian, Ohio. We'll talk about that and perhaps whatever else we get to. Welcome, Julie. It's so nice to talk to you. It's great to talk to you, Nate. I, I don't know. I think we did. Did we do an interview sort of by email some time ago? Maybe? It may be. I, or someone at yeah. ABA. It, it's, yeah, maybe we did. I don't know. I've never talked to you in person, so I'm, I'm really excited, excited for this opportunity. I know. <laughs> I know. I'm kind of geeking out, actually. Ah. Cool. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> um, so let, let's go ahead and start with the birding article. It's about how you've essentially transformed your home and property into this little nature sanctuary um what yeah. was it like when you started oh wow it was um it was in some ways it was sort of overmanaged, and in other ways it was completely uh, a blank slate mm -hmm. um for instance the lawn around the house was mowed with a brush hog <laughs> <laughs> they didn't they did not own a lawnmower so oh, you can man. just imagine what it looked like um it was just full of Canada thistle and awful things. Uh, the only thing planted in the yard was a dahlia, which was <laughs> probably a gift from someone. Um, it was, uh, oh, there was a, a large native trumpet vine climbing up one corner of the house, and it had removed part of the roof shingles. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so there were some things that needed to be attended to immediately. Um, but pretty much every stick of tree or bush or shrub or flower 
here has been planted by me. I was going to say, when you look at something like that, do you see a blank slate or do you see an overwhel- something overwhelming? <laughs> well, you know, it's pretty hard to overwhelm me because, <laughs> <laughs> because I, I like to pile things on. So, yeah, I looked at it and said, great, there's not much here I have to remove, you know. And, um, and, you know, I had to make garden beds and Bill helped with that. And we made a big vegetable garden and, and I've just continued to expand the garden. Like every year, the garden beds get a little wider out into the mode area. Um, you know, I just basically take a spade and give myself another foot or so of gardening room. (laughs) One foot foot a year. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's really fun to see these beds evolve. Um, into something very special as, as each one sort of evolves and, and takes its theme. Yeah, I guess that gets to the point, like, you never really see an endpoint with something like that, right? There's always something that needs work or something you can add on that would be nice. And I guess when you start, oh. it feels like you'll never get there. But I guess as the years kind of go on, you see these little little changes you can make to the fringes and then those become, you know, major foundational points on their own, I imagine. Well, yeah. And, and basically, you know, it's kind of a two-pronged thing. You can, mm-hmm. you can evolve your gardening as, as you described, but you also have to fight back the jungle. And that is really, that's the thrust of what I'm doing now. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm talking, you know, bulldozers. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Because, <laughs> because I could, I could ruin my arms and shoulders and fingers uh, hand cutting all this stuff, or I could hire a guy with a bulldozer for two days. (laughs) And, (laughs) and that is, that is true power. You know, when you, when you realize that the task is bigger than one human and, and you say, you know, I would like this 12 foot high wall of multiflora rose gone. Like it gone like today. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like today, like in the next 15 minutes, I would like that gone. gone. And so once, once I figured out that I could hire this stuff out and accomplish immense amounts of work in minutes, I I, I was like, why did I never do this? You know? (laughs) Um, So, so that's kind of the phase I'm in now. So the, you know, the gardening is all well and good, but, but really mass destruction is what I'm doing. <laughs> There's something to be said for a little grease, like actual grease, not elbow grease. And, uh, oh yeah. And, oh yeah. The, and modern the, machinery. Yeah. <laughs> the scent of diesel. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it thrills me. The growl of earth moving equipment. It's, it's pretty darn nice. So what does it mean to you to have put so much effort into this spot? I imagine that there's, you know, hardly a square inch of it that you don't have some sort of personal connection to. That's correct. I mean, um, yeah, it's it's amazing, actually. And and what it does is, as far as your birding goes, mm-hmm. you know, if you've got an ADA for sanctuary and you've worked so hard to make it great for birds, why would you bird anywhere else That's on true. Global Big Day? <laughs> yeah, you know? fair enough. <laughs> because because honestly, each species that I tally on this place means worlds more to me than something that I would see. Yeah at some, you know, state nature preserve or something like that. And that may sound sort of elitist and smug, but I've worked for this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like it's, it's blood, sweat and tears. And so, you know, it means so much to me to spot a Canada warbler in my own woods, um, you know, rather than driving somewhere to go see it. Yeah. And I imagine, you know, if you put in the effort and put in certain plants, 
that you know that down the road are going to attract those sort of birds, then it's got to be super satisfying to see that actually happen. You know, cause and effect, boom, right there. Yeah, yeah, that that is absolutely amazing. And well, like for instance, um, there's always been whippoorwills here. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done some reading on them lately because I'm kind of thinking, how did I get so lucky as to have whippoorwills? What, yeah. What's going on here that they like? <laughs> and and I read that they like a woodland with an open understory. Yeah, that makes sense. And that is precisely what I've been creating here um, in the orchard where. I've mowed down all these exotic uh, Japanese honeysuckle and, and multiflora rose and um, autumn olive, you know, impenetrable shrubbery. Mm-hmm. And, and I've, I've just basically taken away everything that shouldn't be there. And what is there is light, airy dogwoods and, you know, tall tulip trees and, and an open understory, which is mm-hmm. such a joy, you know, to bird in because you can see stuff. Yeah. And yeah. and I'm watching I'm watching things come in that belong here. Black and white warblers, Kentucky warblers, hooded warblers. Um, you know, that like sort of young stuff, you know, but not choking tangle. Mm-hmm. And um and blue-winged warblers in the orchard and and now um the whippoorwill has taken up residence in the orchard. So instead of singing on my back patio and waking me up, every night he's <laughs> out there. a little bit like, further away yeah <laughs> yeah he's whooping it out in in the orchard where there's all kinds of moths i mean we've done sheet sheet uh you know nights out there and and it's just ridiculous how much yeah. wonderful insect life is out there so that yeah that's a full circle thing that's like oh man this is so awesome you know to actually be consciously creating habitat for mm-hmm. wells. who does that you know well if you've been on a place long enough you do stuff like that yeah it's funny you know where we find whippoorwills here in the southeast is um in those old pine plantations you know people grow pines for <laughs> for you know as a, as a cash crop essentially and it takes however right. 20 25 years for them to get to the point where they they grow but they're essentially these kind of pine scattered pine plantations with nothing underneath them and they love that stuff right. like they'll it's weird yeah. because you won't find any other birds there but you will find whippoorwills that's so interesting yeah yeah well uh, yeah I, I can imagine that that the species diversity is pretty low you know pine warbler and whippoorwill yeah probably, pretty much it what a combination <laughs> yeah what a combo but yeah yeah it, it, again they're responding to they need space to fly they need mm-hmm. to really you know cavort to get their food and the other thing I learned about whippoorwills this spring is that they will actually beat the tree branches to dislodge insects to eat. Really? Oh, I didn't know they did that. Wow. Yeah, they, I have seen it once this spring. They will blunder up into the trees and beat their wings on the leaves, and whatever falls out, they grab. So wow. that made it that made it clear to me how they survive these hideous maze that we've been having. Yeah. Yeah. You know, where where it's like in the twenties at night sometimes, and I I feel like I got a knock on wood as I say that because so far it's been great, um, but twenty 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 and twenty twenty one were absolutely horrible for hmm. birds, and I thought how did how does an in, an aerial insectivore survive a spring like that? You know, yeah. they arrive here in mid April, and then it's just the weather is just crap for the next month. Yeah. Well, that was one answer. You know, they're probably knocking things down. <laughs> huh. it, essentially nocturnal gleaning, right? Yeah. Huh. 
You know, the Chucks down here sometimes will, uh, the Chuckles Widows will sometimes like eat small birds too, which is pretty wild. Yeah. <laughs> so weird. Yes, I've heard that. <laughs> I've heard about people on, um, I'm trying to think which island it was. Oh, um, I think it was one of the keys mm-hmm. where, you know, the, the Chucks wait in the rack line for these exhausted warblers. <laughs> I love it. Such bizarre birds. <laughs> well, it's. That'd be tough on me. <laughs> yeah, well, it'd be, yeah, but I don't know. I don't know which way you go. Like, you're waiting there for the warblers, but then to see, like, a Chuckles Widow, which is such a bizarre bird that you almost yeah. never get to see taking advantage of stuff like that. I don't know. You almost got to yeah. hand it to them. <laughs> I know. I know. No, I would. You don't get me wrong. I'd love to see that. Yeah. Um, my daughter, Phoebe, is in North Carolina. Oh, really? Chuck instead of whips. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I sent her a photo of a Chuck with its mouth open, and she's like, that's actually scary, Mom. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what are some of the biggest difficulties you face in maintaining what you have created already? Well, well, yeah, it, that's, that's it. That's the difficulty is maintaining. Yeah. Because, you know, every, every little bit that you clear, you're basically signing a pact with yourself that you're going to go back in. <laughs> you can't leave it And, there. you know, yeah. yeah, basically spray, you know, the, the regrowth of whatever it is you, you've, you've killed or mm-hmm. tried to kill. Um, because none of this stuff gives up without a fight. Right. And, um, and you know, you've got you've to poison the root. You have to. I mean, I have people saying to me all the time, but you can't use poisons on a bird sanctuary. And I'm like, <laughs> well, if you don't, you don't have your sanctuary That's anymore. That's right, yeah. Yeah, there's a reason those invasive plants are so invasive. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, if, if you if you blink or roll over, they, they're back. And so, you know, you, you don't, I certainly don't broadcast spray anything, but I do spray stumps and I, and, and small rosettes of multiflora, which given a chance would become, again, a 12-foot high wall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is there anything that you didn't know when you started that you sort of wish you did or mistakes that you've made over the time? I imagine there's quite a few. Like it's it's sort of a that that yeah. is a wonderful, wonderful question. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, what we didn't know when we started was that ceasing mowing was actually saying, come on in to the invasive. Huh. Yeah. And you know, we said we got here, we found a bunch of box turtle um shells bleached in the meadow. Mm-hmm. Um, because this guy had been mowing the, this beautiful, diverse meadow. He'd been mowing it three times a summer. Mm-hmm. So he'd been mowing it in June, you know, which is just the ultimate no-no. Yeah. And, um, and, and he'd been mowing it in July, you know, and this is basically taking out the field sparrows and the prairie warblers. <laughs> right, before doing. they get even get um, a chance to go. You know, yeah. what did he know? Yeah. yeah. He described the yellow-breasted chats that nested in the yard as the most rude, obnoxious, and annoying bird. <laughs> <laughs> well, it may be true, but at least it's endearing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he vaguely, he was a Brit, so he vaguely knew that they were, you know, something nice, but he, that's how he described them. He didn't like the noises they made. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. we got here and we said, oh, you know, we've got to quit this mowing nonsense. And so we did. And we let it go for two or three years. And at that point, you have, you know, tulip trees coming up, which mm. are, you know, as big around as a hot dog. So, you know, at some point, it becomes impossible to cut with a brush hog. Yeah. Um, so we didn't know the pressing nature of mowing, that you, you have to do it at least once a year, or you're just going to get a forest. Yeah. And yeah. Um, open areas are 
at a premium here because I'm in the most heavily forested county in Ohio. It's one of the two or three most heavily forested counties in Ohio. So, you know, a little grassland is just like, oh my gosh, (laughs) no, you can get grassland birds, you know? So, um, yeah, if I, if I'd only known that, that we needed to be a lot more attentive with mowing, um, I think things would be different for me now, but right now I'm reclaiming. Reclaiming. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever experimented with fire in your grassland? Um, yeah, yeah, we yeah. have. And, and Bill and I have tried numerous times to burn our, <laughs> uh, our prairie piece that we planted years ago, mm-hmm. um, because it, it immediately goes to raspberry, you know, black yeah. raspberry and, yeah. and, you know, sumac. And, um, our problem was we couldn't get it and keep it burning. Hmm. Um, so, so, you know, I've learned a ton about burning. Mm-hmm. And the the one thing I've learned is that I don't really want to do it close to my house. <laughs> Fair um, enough. <laughs> that's a, that's an issue with a lot of people. I think I've talked to a you yeah. know state park folks in North Carolina where they burn in some of the state parks down in the sand hills where they need to, and yeah, they really have to pay very close attention to the people whose houses are abutting the property. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, when I do burn, I have a crew here. Mm-hmm. I don't mess around. You know, yeah. I'm not. I'm not going to set something and then, as almost always happens, have an afternoon wind spring up Yeah, and, you know, have it get away from me. So what I do, um, I, you know, we, we, we couldn't keep the, the prairie meadow burning enough to do any good, you mm-hmm. know, and we tried so many different times. We would burn at night and, and we just get this little crawling you know, one inch high line of flame that would then sputter out and you yeah. have to relapse. So, so, but, but when I do burn my brush piles, which I actually call my eagle's nest because they're <laughs> these enormous piles of, you know, stuff that I've cut all winter. Um, I have, I have like three guys come over yeah. and, and light it for me with kerosene. And then as soon as it's, you know, at a, at a stage I can handle, they go home. But I'm, I am, when you see like a 20 foot high tower of flame with smoke going <laughs> off it, and it's like literally, you know, a hundred feet from your house. Yeah, a little intimidating. Yeah. <laughs> it's not something you want to do alone, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so if you were going to give, you know, advice to someone with a similar plot of land and similar ambitions, um, yeah. what sort of advice would you tell them? Well, if you're going to try to manage 80 acres and you have grassland, you have to have a tractor, mm-hmm. um, like a real tractor, like a Massey Ferguson. And, um, you know, I, one of the things I don't want to do at my age and stage of life is learn how to run that, uh, with the brush hog on it, because I'm pretty sure I'll kill myself. <laughs> so, um, so I hire somebody once a year to come in November and just mow everything that can be mowed with it. And that is working out very well for me. Mm-hmm. But I own the tractor. I maintain it. I probably drop a grand a year into that damn thing. It's a 1954. <laughs> it's actually older than me. Um, but, you know, I keep it in good working order so that when they come, it will go. Yeah. And uh, I own the implements. And, you know, it's it's not trivial. The, the yeah. equipment that you need to maintain a place like this. And if you're really serious about maintaining a meadow, you got to mow it. <laughs> you know, it's not going to stay, it's not going to stay nice. Yeah. What kind of birds do you end up getting in your meadow? Do you get things like bobolinks uh, stopping by or even nesting in there? 
Uh, no, no, no. We are too low elevation too low. here in mm-hmm. South Ohio for bobolink. Bobolink is really a, an altitudinal, you know, sure. bird for us. We don't see them until the highlands of West Virginia, really. Um, they do nest sparingly on some reclaimed strip mine, but again, they're very area sensitive. Yeah. So my little, you know, 17 acres of, of meadow is Does not, not attractive. attractive. Yeah. Exactly. It, it makes sense. Yeah. That's how we, that's where we see them in, down here in the, in North Carolina as well. They, they'll be up on the balds sometimes. Yeah. Uh, when there's, yeah. you know, the, the natural grasslands on top of those mountains. Right, right. Or or in, you know, a hay field at, at decent altitude. Yeah. What yeah, I yeah. do get, though, um, I get field sparrows. Mm-hmm. I get sipping sparrows. I get uh, prairie warblers most years. This is actually the first year that I haven't had a prairie warbler since we moved here. And I'm concerned. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, what did I do wrong? Um <laughs> One too few cedar trees, and then all the prairie right. trees are gone. <laughs> prairie warblers are gone. Right. We get the blue-winged warblers mm-hmm. and um, yellow-breasted chat. Orchard orioles are starting to come in oh, uh, nice. because I've, I've let a few scattered trees grow up in the meadow in the hopes of attracting them and eastern kingbirds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they like a savanna sort of effect. Yeah, yeah, so, for sure. Yeah, so I'm letting a few nice things like persimmons come up, and I'm keeping those. And I'm and, and last year I got an orchard oriole. You know, only the second pair in 30 years. Yeah. So uh, they're prospecting around here now. Um, trying to think what else missed in the meadow. Song sparrow is weird. They 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 spend the winter here sometimes, but they almost never nest. It's very odd. Hmm. Um, I think what else is out there. Oh, um, American woodcock. Oh, nice. Um, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, that is that is one of my favorite things about this place is being able to walk out in February and March and, <laughs> you know, do the whole woodcock walk without, you know, ever. I mean, bring your dinner plate, you know, it's out there. <laughs> enjoy the you show. Enjoy. Yeah, dinner theater. <laughs> exactly. Dinner theater. Exactly. Yeah. And that, that kicks off spring for me. They They usually arrive around the 17th of February. And at that point, I say, it's spring. Yeah, I'm ready. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think one of the maybe subtler skills of uh, an experienced birder is to be sort of able to tie certain species of birds to certain plants. It sounds like you're doing a little bit of that, but are there any sort of unexpected connections you've discovered in uh, working on your property? Hmm. Birds and plants connection. Oh, well, um, I planted birches when I first moved here mm-hmm. because I loved them. I, I went to school in New England and I remember on the New York Thruway on my first trip to Massachusetts seeing birches. And I was like, oh my God, they exist. You know, because I'd grown up in Virginia and <laughs> I'd only seen them as ornamentals. Um, so, so I've just been fixated on birches. So I planted these gray birches that I got from, you know, the cheapest tabloid Burgess, <laughs> you know, catalog. And I planted them all around the yard and they are now you know, taller than the house. And what was unexpected about that was just how abundant they are in attracting birds. Oh yeah. Specifically. Yeah. Specifically warblers. Yeah. Um, I found that. And I figured, yeah, I figured out that it's because they're susceptible to everything. They, <laughs> yeah, it makes they sense. Get yeah. yeah, they get aphids, they get loopers, they get yellow neck caterpillars, they get yellow front caterpillars, they get, everything and so the birds are forever combing them mm-hmm. but they also dispense seed from july through april 
Wow. You know, they are steady seed dispensers. So, you know, you, you they do everything. Birches are the all-purpose you know, bird attractant. Yeah, I found that to be the case too. There's a there's a real nice park here um, where I live in Greensboro um, that everyone goes to in the spring. It's like the birding park. And there's actually yeah. a property that is across the road from it where this house has a giant river birch in their yard. <laughs> and it, it's like yeah. the magic tree. It's like there if there's nothing else anywhere else, there will be birds on that tree. And usually like lots of, lots of warblers, I think. It's been cerulean war, like really desirable warblers that people want to see. Yeah, it's wild. They're super buggy. <laughs> yeah, they're super buggy. Yeah. And they also rot really fast and they die really fast. So woodpeckers <laughs> love them. And, yeah. you know, they've just got everything. And the cool thing is, is that I've got this sustainable thing going where um, they drop seedlings. They drop seeds all over my yard and mm-hmm. I tenderly pot those up <laughs> and nurture them. And then I've got one now ready to go. Uh, a clump just died. I'll plant that out as a dead clump. And, um, you know, as I find them, I'll add to it. And, you know, in a few years, I'll have a ni- another nice clump of birches where I just have dead white trunks right now. Yeah, they grow pretty fast, too, if I recall correctly. They do. They yeah. grow very fast. Yeah. yeah. They're very, very satisfying trees. And, they're you know, they are susceptible to bronze birch borer. Uh, river birches are somewhat less susceptible. So if I had to do it over again, I'd probably plant river mm-hmm. um, rather than gray. But I just I just love what I've got. You know, that's yeah. part of the secret of life. Love what you have. <laughs> love what you have. Absolutely. Um, so do you mind if we change gears just a little bit and talk a little bit about uh, BWD, the next incarnation <laughs> of Birdwatcher's Digest, the publication that your late husband, Bill Thompson, the th- third basically turned into like a bird world juggernaut and one that you had a significant hand in as well um how does it feel to see that publication essentially back in spirit uh if in a slightly different form it feels great yeah um it it is it's a much different form it's going to be bigger Mm -hmm. it's going to be much more beautiful full size and i you know you live with the digest size for you know 40 years or Mm -hmm. whatever. And, and you, and you sort of just take for granted that it's always going to be tiny and your paintings are always going to be small and your photos will be reproduced, (laughs) you know, it's the size of, you know, average postage stamp. And, but then you get like this whole new lease on life when you realize that, Hey, it doesn't always have to be small, you know? And, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who are like, but it fits in my purse. And, (laughs) And we're like, I'm sorry, this won't. <laughs> <Fold know>? it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, just carry it under your arm. Yeah. Um, but so, so you know, there. I, I certainly see the attraction of the digest size, but the, the, the uptick in size is great. Um, the other thing that that is going on is that instead of just contributing and editing it for science and and grammar, mm-hmm. um, I am now um, advising editor. Mm-hmm. And so that means that I am working on BWD every day and um, helping uh, Jessica Vaughn, our fabulous editor, select content and um, also soliciting content. Yeah. Uh, I am also in charge of cover art, which has... Seems like a natural, uh, very, natural place. <laughs> yes. Very excited about that because I have a good network of real bird painters, you know, people mm-hmm. who who actually are dead serious about getting it right and painting birds. And I'm, I'm asking them, you know, for, for a uh, uh, cover solicitation kind of thing. And we are 
um, involved in planning the next issues, uh, you know, figuring out we're going to try to have a loose theme for each issue. And uh, that will probably be dictated by the bird on the cover. Yeah. Um, you know, so so the July, August issue has a grassland um, theme. Uh, I painted a Hensel Sparrow for it and have a story inside about Hensel about Sparrow, species Sparrow. profile of Hensel Sparrow. And so, yeah, it's, um, it's so exciting. I mean, it's just like, it's like this many limbed organism that, that everything <laughs> is right, you know, <laughs> yeah. and you're trying to put it in a basket all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I ran into, I ran into Jess at, um, on the boardwalk at, uh, McGee Marsh and we talked for a little while and she was, uh, could not could not speak enough about all the work that you're doing uh, as a tireless, as a tireless editor and bringing this back. And um, she was enormously thankful. So just passing that on. <laughs> well, I'm very thankful for her. And, you know, we work together like a couple of sisters, you know, we've mm. known each other for years and years. And Jess was probably BWD's biggest fan. Um, in the yeah. day, Jess and her best friend, Kelly Ball, were, mm-hmm. were always at our events and volunteering to make it go smoothly. And they were, I mean, they were like angels dropped from heaven. I, yeah. I just, they were amazing and continue to be. And um, yeah, so the, the delight is mutual and the appreciation. Yeah. Oh, so I'll go back to your, your property for one last, one last question. What is your favorite <laughs> time of year at Indigo Hill? Plants, birds, well, whatever. Is there a favorite or are they all are like uh, choosing your own, choosing your favorite child? They're all kind of special in their own way. <laughs> I, I, I absolutely love May if May behave. <laughs> yeah, um, the big but there's so much angst in spring for me um, because the weather is so iffy. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't really say that I enjoy it because I can't let my guard down. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, I, know I never know if, if it's going to freeze and I have to pull everything. So I have to say my favorite season for birding here is mid-August. Um, and, it, you know, the fullness of summer when all the juvenile warblers are coming through and I've got my little bird bath running and I see the birds coming into it. and um, the insects are at their peak, so the birds are at their peak, and moths are abundant, and you know some of my favorite wildflowers are coming out. So I have to say, yeah, I really, really like late summer and early fall because it's just you just never know what you're going to see. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I always think of um, late summer has some really great natural smells too. I don't know what it is about yeah. just like like everything's yeah. growing and green and there's that kind of earthy decomposition going on there too as trees kind of and yeah. plants kind of go off. It's it's a great smelling time of year. It is. And let's not forget the insect music. Yeah, which, so good. Yeah. yeah. Which <laughs> becomes more important to me every year. I I just treasure the uh, cicadas and the meadow katydids and the bush katydids and the handsome trees and everything in the snowy tree crickets that, that tune up. Um, I have to say though, last night I sat out on my new little patio and I watched the blood moon rise and listened to the whippoorwills singing. And the first four flasher fireflies were out. Mm-hmm. They fly about eye level and they flash. Well, these were flashing three times. And it was just like, it always surprises me. You know, it's like, wait, it's May 15th. How can there be lightning bugs for February? And so, I don't know. Every season has its allure. And I just I just feel so blessed to live here and be able to 
have that be my television. Julie Zickafoos, what a delight. Her piece in the special May issue of uh, a birding magazine is Wildlife Guarding in Appalachian, Ohio. It's about all the plants and animals that are around in her area. And of course, knowing Julie, it's about a lot of other stuff too. Um, thank you so much. It was so nice to talk to you and I uh, hope we'll run into you down the road. That would be awesome, Nate. If you're in my area, give me a holler. Yeah, I actually drove through it twice on the way to and from the um, the the biggest week. And uh, I, I see the sign for Marietta. I'm like, mm, well, Julie's down there. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's fix that. Next yeah, year. one of these days. Biggest week in American birding was back this past week in Northwest Ohio for the first time since the pandemic began. The last time we were all able to be together was 2019, three years ago. And let me tell you, it was phenomenal to be back. That's not to say that COVID did not rear its spike protein adorned head during the event. A couple of my ABA colleagues were stricken. Both John and Kintinka have improved, thankfully. And David Lindo, the urban birder, gave his keynote presentation while sequestered in his hotel room. A fancy bit of audio-visual magic salvaged that program. Kudos to those involved. But for the most part, everything felt pretty normal. The fan trips, the boardwalk, the birds, which were exceptional. It was almost as if they were ready to welcome birders back. At least two Kirtland's warblers made an appearance. Field trips were practically tripping over morning warblers. Kentucky and Connecticut made appearances, as did birders from those states, no doubt. Uh, it wasn't just, wasn't just warblers either. There was both a rough and a curlew sandpiper seen in northern Ohio during this time. I missed both of them. One day wonders. So it goes. But still, what a time. But as exceptional as the birding was this last week, the birdering was even better. Many of us spent the entire pandemic reading about new folks finding the hobby, and at last, those people showed out. I met a bunch of folks who came to birding because of the pandemic and are now engaged in what is perhaps our biggest event at least here in North America, I have no doubt that our friends at concurrently running festivals at Point Pelee in Ontario and Indiana Dunes along Lake Michigan had the same experiences. I'd be curious to hear them. The thing that is great about Biggest Week, though, and this is certainly true about other festivals to an extent, but seems to be you know just a, a really big part of what makes the Biggest Week special, is that the vibes are fantastic. Just a really positive feel. Lots of happy birders. It's always like this. The birds help, but yeah, it just felt exceptionally so this past week. Lots of smiles, lots of hugs, lots of former podcast guests to thank in person. What a time. You know, I just want to thank everyone who talked to me about the podcast. It's always fun to meet listeners in real life. For the last couple of years, I've spent way too much time perseverating about Apple podcast reviews. So it was good to touch grass, as the kids say. Uh, thanks to the Kaufmans. I'm so sorry I didn't get to talk to you more. Rob Ritma, Tyler Ficker, for putting on a great show. We'll see you next year. Can't wait. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support it by supporting the ABA with your membership. You get a lot of benefits, but we do have a new one. Members are now able to access the entire library of ABA publications going all the way back to our 1969 first issue of Birding, then Birdwatching Magazine. All members have access to this. It is a ton of bird information, knowledge, 
time wasting stuff all on our website. You can get more information about all of that at aviator.org slash join. Special shout outs this week to Amador Estrada of Chula Vista, California, Andrew Hasselwander of Bethesda, Maryland, Jacob Kirkland of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, Tammy Popple of Colgate, Wisconsin, Todd Rippy of Longboat Key, Florida, and Kate Shrum of Grove City, Ohio, all of whom recently joined the ABA, noted the podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Nikki Belmonte. We're throwing her into the deep end with a web series about identifying fledgling flycatchers called Nikki Picky's Tricky Chickies. Technical production is by John Lowry, who is back from his own short stint with COVID, a period he calls the biggest week, sickest peak. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who doubted the initial sighting of the rare shorebirds, but eventually and sadly accepted them, explaining rough bluff, tough bluff, half gruff buff. You can find us online at ABA.org and on social media, most everywhere is American Birding Association, but on Twitter as at ABA. I was trying to come up with a lighthearted way to kind of share my brief and unsatisfying look at a morning warbler last week, but I could never come up with an appropriate morning joke. Questions, comments can come to podcast.aba.org. I am Nathan Swick, and I am here to talk about birds. Birds, birds, birds. Birds are cool, and I like birds. Some birds are red, some birds are blue, some birds are rainbow. That is all I have to say. I am Nathan Swick, and I like birds.